Our text for meditation this 22nd Sunday after Trinity is on our Old Testament reading, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of our Lord. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shtim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Our grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever heard of a writer by the name of Franz Kafka? In his day, he was a nobody, and he thought as much. He didn't finish many of his books and his stories, like The Metamorphosis, The Trial, and my favorite, A Hunger Artist, only earned him fame after he died. He is known for writing about oblique, bizarre and alienating and cruel situations where a mysteriously hostile world persecutes and harms normal people, for no discernible reason. Kafka writes about absurd situations that arise from the world being too complex and the way that hearts grow cold on account of modern life. His works are not fun to read, but they are very relatable given the cold, unfeeling, and unexplained way things are today. But Kafka has one story, a very short one, that speaks to the human heart more than any other. A single, long paragraph he scrawled out called Before the Law. This tiny little story describes a man trying to reach the law but he is prevented from doing so by a gatekeeper. The gatekeeper warns him that he may not pass and access the thing that he wants yet. So the man waits for permission, constantly asking if he can pass, attempting to bribe the guard and so forth. He is so hungry to arrive at the law that he waits until he has lost his mind and is slowly starving to death. The gatekeeper told him 
that he could not go in yet. But yet never arrives, and the time never comes for him to be let in. In his last moments of life, the poor man asks the guard a desperate question and receives a callous answer. Quote, Everyone strives after the law, says the man. So how is it that in these many years no one except me has requested entry? The gatekeeper sees that the man is already dying. And in order to reach his diminishing sense of hearing, he shouts at him, Here no one else can gain entry, since this entrance was assigned only to you. I'm going now to close it. End quote. That's the end of the story. In the book of Micah, the children of Israel and Judah are put into a similar situation, something truly Kafka-esque. The prophet spends five chapters chastising both nations for their oppression of the poor, describing the eventual invitation of the Gentiles into the assembly of God predicting the arrival of the Messiah and the cleansing of the land which will leave only a remnant to survive. Over these five chapters, our Lord lays out the future, both the good and the bad, while judging the people for the way they are behaving in the present. Then, arriving at our reading in the sixth chapter, God invites the people to respond. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. It is almost like God is saying, Now Israel, you have your witnesses. The very world itself judges between me and you. Go ahead, make your case. But before the Israelites could respond, our Lord brings his case forward. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And then he describes his gracious actions in the past including the Exodus and Balaam's prophecies of blessing. In other words, he says, I have been good to you, but you treat me like I have been bad to you. What gives? Now imagine how cruel this must feel. Let's put ourselves in the Israelites' shoes for a moment and think about it. The creator of the entire universe, the God who sits enthroned above the heavens, who always wins, has just spent the larger part of this book telling you exactly how bad you are and exactly what will happen in the future. He has told you how things will be and you have no recourse whatsoever to change this fact. Yet despite these decrees, God then says to you, Now make your case, defend yourself, and tell me what it is I did wrong. We are tempted to call this Kafka-esque 
because the Israelites are invited to do something completely futile when invited to level a charge against God Almighty. They are given a task, but they know that like Kafka's little story, God stands there as a gatekeeper to prevent them from accomplishing it. Anything they say in this moment is easily proven wrong by divine pronouncement, and there is no recourse to the no that he can shout from the heavens. There is a single rule, one with just two words when it comes to contending with God. Here it is. God wins. He is strong, we are weak. He is right, we are wrong. In every single fight between God and man, God wins and man loses. Yet the Israelites are invited, even commanded here, to make an attempt. We could go further in drawing the connection to Kafkaesque literature, because the Israelites are told to make their case against God while being completely ignorant. God asks, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? What an impossible request. These people have no clue what our Lord has been up to recently, let alone how he could possibly have done anything wrong against them. It is not like the Almighty just opened up his record books and told them they were free to audit him. He is not inviting them to snoop around the throne room in heaven to search for contraband or stolen goods. If they answer with some offense that they perceive in God's visible actions, whether it's a lack of provisions or affliction with drought, they are so in the dark about what he is actually up to that any answer they give is certainly wrong, and they know it. You see, beloved, God is inviting them to play a game that they cannot win. And again, they know it. They cannot answer according to some supposed misdeed on God's part. After all, he is sinless, and it is a sin to accuse him of being otherwise. So what do they say? Since God has commanded them to speak, they can't remain silent. In their position, it is either disobey our Lord by not saying anything, or speak and be proven wrong, chastised more, condemned yet again by the mouth of the angry prophet. We do not know how long they took to answer. The prophet here records words, not events. But I would contend that they deliberated together, perhaps the chiefs and kings and wise men together, to give an answer that threads the needle, that gets closest to slipping between the rock and the hard place. What do they come up with? Well, they answer with resentment, even the voice of honest frustration. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? They say to God, you are unpleasable. There is no satisfying you. 
What do you want from me that I should be acceptable? Do you want my cattle? No, that's not enough. Do you want thousands of sacrifices? No, that's not enough. How about I kill my child for you? Will that satisfy you, dear God? These are people that have had it up to here with God being unhappy with them. Micah wrote his book when King Hezekiah, a righteous king, was ruling over Judah. The people had repented of their idolatry, destroyed their high places, cut down every possible temptation to abandon God. The prophets were heeded in the royal courts and the priesthood was properly elevated. And despite all this, they still receive condemnation from our Lord. All these reforms, all this repentance, and they still had to watch in horror as the Assyrians were besieging their northern relatives for a bloody three-year war. When is enough enough? They asked the Almighty. When is it finally enough for you to stop acting like you hate us? Whether we are willing to admit it or not, the response of Israel and Judah here is one which we can relate to. Now, I'm sure some pious little prancer or theological paralegal would love to interject here that verses 6 and 7 are sinful because the children of Israel were disrespectful to God in their answer, and they didn't come to him in fear, and it constitutes offering strange fire, and blah, 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 blah. I won't hear any of it. God asked an honest question, and they rightly gave an honest answer. And if we're being honest, what the children of Israel and Judah say here reflects how frustrated we feel sometimes in our walk with God. So you hear the gospel and repent of your sins. You get baptized and our Lord opens your eyes to the wonderful news that you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and justified in his resurrection. You receive a good church home and start rejoicing to walk in his ways, but then you are told that you need to be a better person. The pietist pastor over at the Very Lutheran Project tells you that a good Christian is active in sanctification and obedience to our Lord. We need to continue in penitent faith and confess our sins. So for the rest of your life, you will experience falling flat on your face and getting back up over and over and over again in a cycle of sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, until Christ returns or you die. Until then, it is not enough. Being a Christian involves wrestling long term with guilt, while being told at the same time, we are free from guilt, while being told we need to repent of our sins even when we know they are forgiven. Jesus says his burden is light, but we are instructed to take on more and more and constantly improve ourselves like we are spiritual power lifters chasing ever higher numbers. Then to top it all off, we learn about the theology of the cross, where this very same God that loves us tells us he is going to chastise us making us suffer so that we are more holy, all while the world hates us and persecutes us. So you are told to be better, and better, and better, and it is never enough. But then it feels like God is punishing you for trying, and siding with the enemies of the church that seek to harm you. 
It is no stretch of the imagination to say that the believer lives in what feels at times like a Kafka-esque environment. Your enemies hate you, so they persecute you. God loves you, so he disciplines you. You love God, so you end up hating yourself, at least the sinful parts of you, the old Adam. You get beaten up by literally everyone and everything, all so that you may receive the promised inheritance of eternal life in Christ, something we can't even fully imagine because it is already here but not yet. The Christian life is difficult. It can be confusing. And oftentimes we find ourselves asking God the same question the Israelites asked. When is enough enough? When do I finally get the reward? When do I finally feel like my faith was worth it? When does the suffering finally stop? Before we continue, let me assure you that expressing frustration like this is not in and of itself sinful. In fact, I would say that the Israelites' response, or you could call it an outburst, was the right thing to do. They did not accuse God of wickedness. They did not blaspheme nor proclaim heresy. It is no sin to complain to God. And if one complains about the feeling that God is unpleasable, what better way to address that feeling than to go to our Lord with it? In our reading, note that God does not condemn them for their response. He does not shout them down, nor accuse them of blasphemy. Instead, he answers them gently. In the initial indictment, God brought up the exodus and the blessings pronounced on Israel through Balaam. He started off saying, Don't you remember my promises? Don't you remember the deliverance that I accomplished for you from Egypt? What on earth could you possibly have against me? But the children of Israel don't address these blessings because God has been condemning them in Micah's book in the present. They want an answer for what to do now, how to get God to love them again. So our Lord responds with a gentle course correction. To an assembly of believers, to us, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? He has told you, Micah says, what is good. God Almighty in his love has shown them what is good. You see, by the word told, it is making conspicuous, obvious in his interactions with them. He is saying, I have shown you my goodness, not by catechism class, not by confirmation class, not by visiting theologians teaching the finer points of ethics, but by doing. In saying, he has told you, the prophet tells the people to remember all the times God has demonstrated his goodness to them and called them to do the same. Israel, do you not remember the call of Abraham? Do you not remember the exodus? 
Can you recall the day he delivered you from the Moabites when they attacked? Do you remember the prosperity he blessed you with during the days of King Solomon? What about the great peace accomplished through David's struggles against all their enemies? God says, you're feeling like this is Kafka-esque. But when you just remember everything I've done for you, I promise that that feeling can melt away. I care, beloved child. I am for you. The daily bread our Lord provides, the roofs over our heads, the clothes we wear, the hobbies and relationships we enjoy, all these come from God, who St. James says provides everything good in our lives. The Israelites were so focused on the reprimands they were receiving, and they were so focused on this notion that they had to earn forgiveness through the law, that they had forgotten how much God loved them. They were like the man in Kafka's story that waits around to access the law and everything that it says happens when you follow it. And God responds to them here by saying, Stop reading Kafka. Leave the gate of the law and come over to my love expressed in the gospel. Then our Lord says to them, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Dear Israelites, beloved church, you are working so hard to be saved through this law that you have forgotten that God saved you in the first place. He doesn't want you jumping on the hamster wheel of earning grace and trying to accumulate merit before him, trying to earn his love. He already loves you. When he invites the Israelites and all of us believers to walk with him, it is proof positive that he accepts us without all these sacrifices. If he invites you to walk with him, then he does not require you to purchase a relationship with him through works. It is a free offer, a gift given through faith. Now surely our Savior was honest when he called for our endurance. Matthew twenty four thirteen says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. God never promised us an easy life. To paraphrase Luther, Christ was given a crown of thorns. Why would we expect a crown of roses for ourselves? But our Lord never wants us to forget that he is for us, not against us. Unlike Kafka's stories about being alienated by an inexplicably hostile world, God proclaims to us that he is for us. He likes us. He supports us and loves us every step of the way. We are called to love justice, to earnestly desire to do the right thing, surely. But we are also called to love mercy. Whose mercy? God's mercy showered upon us. Let us rejoice that he cares and that he sees us. And even if the world, the flesh, and the devil are against us, we have a God who actively stays with us in this relationship. Any condemnation, any rebuke we receive from him is not a callous and unfeeling judge passing sentence on us. It's our loving Father wanting us to get closer to him. 
May we walk in joy knowing that this divine warmth is granted to us. And may we love him all the more for it. Now the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.